And at the last minute, I decided to just say, I'm going to go traveling, but would you be interested in keeping me on remotely? I kind of winced. I literally like shuddered when I said it because I thought, oh my God, what have I just done? This is embarrassing <laughs> because I'm going to get rejected. But after a little bit of silence and he kind of looked around the room, he went, actually, that's not a bad idea. It was a huge win for me. I remember getting on the train home kind of with a big smile on my face thinking, what have I just done? I have no idea. I didn't even know where I was going. At that point, I didn't know where I was going to travel to, what my plan was, but my boss said he was going to take me on, and it was a fraction of the money that I would earn in London, but it was a little bit of money, and that gave me the confidence to book my flight out to Cuba, and that's where it, where it all began. Welcome to the Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer and writer entrepreneur, community builder, and a firm believer that every one of us can go after the stories we've always wanted to tell with the right support, encouragement, and structure. I'm on a mission to help women storytellers everywhere break into and thrive in the travel media space. If you're ready to ditch your fears to the side, grow your knowledge and confidence, and publish your travel stories, you're in the right place. Let's go. If you're a newer listener to our show, you might not have had the chance to work through our whole library yet. And over the last seven seasons, we've recorded a variety of interviews and in-depth episodes on a range of topics in travel media. So that's why this week and next, I want to share with you two very special episodes from our extensive archive. Today, I want to bring to your attention an episode we did all the way back in season two of our podcast with travel writer Jessica Vincent. Jessica is a multi-award-winning journalist working with BBC Travel, National Geographic Traveler, CNN Travel, and more. And even since we had this conversation, she's been doing amazing things in the travel media space, like publishing a book on best British travel writing. So definitely check out what she's been up to on Instagram. You can find her there at Nomada Travel, and we'll share the link to her uh, profile as well. In the chat that you're about to hear, Jessica gives poignant, real, inspiring, and uplifting advice about starting a path into travel journalism. I loved talking to Jessica about her experiences and the very real challenges faced on this path, like facing your fears, taking action, and how we can better support ourselves while developing our portfolio. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Jess, to our podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you on today and to learn about your super inspiring story. Welcome. I can't wait to get into it. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. First of all, tell me, how are you doing? You're in the UK right now, which is going through another lockdown. Yes, yeah. So the UK is not doing great at the moment. We've had yeah new variants. So the cases have been really going up, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. The UK is vaccinated, I think, over four and a half million people. So I'm really, really hoping that in the next couple of months, things will improve. We'll have to wait and see. But at the moment, it's locked down for everyone. And yeah, I'm in my house in Brighton and I haven't left the house for weeks. So I'm so happy to be speaking about travel today because I need a bit of escapism. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's the sentiment that I've been getting this whole time with this podcast is that we need some joy. <laughs> this is a joyful subject for many. So excited that we are able to do this. 
So I want to start our conversation where I usually start, which is, tell me, what was Jess dreaming about as a kid? Gosh, Yulia, <laughs> what wasn't I dreaming about? I think it'd be an easier question. I, I had a huge imagination as a child. I think, I think I still do have a big imagination. In my head, I really believed that anything was possible. Jess at six, seven, eight years old could do anything. Um, I would chop and change what I was dreaming about almost every week, I think. One week I'd want to be a ballet dancer. I was really into dancing when I was younger. I went to ballet class and I still love dancing. That's still a big dream of mine to be a dancer one day. Who knows? Um, The next week I'd want to be a vet or a lifeguard. Uh, cabin crew I think I went through that phase I wanted to be an air hostess but I think the closest I got to committing to a career path for longer than let's say a day or a week was when I went to Mexico with my mom I think I was nine years old we spent a whole day swimming with dolphins and manatees and turtles it was a day trip and that that day really just blew me away it was it was the best the best day that I'd had in my life in my nine years of being on the planet but it really really did blow me away and I remember looking at the guide who was on the trip with us and thinking is this guy's job is to swim with dolphins all day like (laughs) I'd never been exposed to anything like that before I couldn't believe that his job was just to be out in the water all day long meeting new people and swimming with these amazing animals so I remember just staring at him being a bit weird about the whole thing and then I plucked up the courage to say to him you know I I think your job's amazing I would love to do this when I'm older and then my imagination ran away with me I said I'm I'm free next summer I'm gonna come here (laughs) I looked at my mom and I was like I'll I'll get my mom to plan the trip for me we can come next year and I'll train I was nine years old that was not gonna happen but I I was just so excited about it. And he he very sweetly said, you know, you're always welcome here. You can come whenever I want. And I took that as a job offer. (laughs) I was like, that's it. Mom, this is me. I'm going to go to Mexico and be a snorkeling guide. And that's me. That was what I was dreaming about for a long time. And it's funny because I never, obviously, I didn't become a snorkeling guide, but I did return to Mexico and end up living there for six months. But I then ended up living in Latin America on and off for three years. So I think thinking about it now, I didn't know at the time, obviously, but that trip to Mexico probably did plant a seed for traveling in Latin America. That's how, I'd, how I have done for the last four years. Yeah. I love how you had this dream and you got inspired by his job and what he does and immediately like, yes, I'm coming back next year. I love that. I love that like desire to act and go for it. And, and just <laughs> Kids, right? As children, we have this ability to do that. And then sometimes we lose that as we grow older. And that's sad. That's really sad for me. I think as kids, we're encouraged to dream a lot more as children. Whereas it's almost kind of like it felt like an overnight thing for me. When you hit your teenage years, then suddenly dreaming is no longer, oh, that's sweet. She's got a big imagination. It's like, oh, this is unrealistic. (laughs) The world starts showing us in very different ways how it's not possible to do something, right? But I think that's really, at least for me, that's been kind of this guiding light or this guidepost to walk towards is that as the world keeps like showing me, that it's not possible, I stubbornly return to that childish determination that no, it is possible. And then you start looking for ways or you start looking for signs from the world 
because the world shows you both ways. That's the trick, right? It's it's a matter of what you're paying attention to. Are you paying attention to the signs that say, no, it's not possible? Or are you paying attention to the signs that say you can do it? It's your choice. Yeah, it is. Amazing. So what was your childhood like in general? Where did you grow up? I grew up in southeastern Spain in a little village called Albir. It's about a 45-minute drive from Alicante in Spain. And I have really fond memories. Uh, well, actually, I was born in the Canary Islands, but we moved to mainland Spain when I was about three years old. Spain is a beautiful place to grow up. I'm so, so grateful for that because living in Spain, I mean, you spend, they have long summers, especially in the south, really long days in the summer. You spend most of your time outside. I spent a lot of my time in the water. I was a 10-minute walk from the beach. So yeah, really just, it was a very safe village as well. So my mom would allow me to go and, you know, go out with my friends and go out and for a walk in the mountains. It wasn't, it was safe to do that. So I felt like I had a lot of freedom and spending a lot of time outside. And I still, to this day, feel most comfortable when I can see the sea, um, when the sun is out and when I'm outside is where I'm happiest. And I think that comes from growing up in a small town in Spain where that was available to me. And But that's not to say it wasn't without its difficulties. You know, it was, it was just me and my mum. My father left us when I was three years old. Oh, my God. Same. same uh, oh, really? Exactly. At three years old for me as well. <laughs> wow. What, what is it about that? That's it. Three years. Um, yeah. My, it, yeah, it was a very and it was a very sudden thing. It wasn't, you know, at least what my mum tells me, you know, it was kind of an overnight thing. He packed up and left. So that was that was a big strain. Um, he lived in the Canary Islands and my mum and I were in the mainland. So I would fly to see my father for a few years. The relationship continued. I would fly as an accompanied minor on a plane actually to see him. So my first experience flying solo <laughs> was when I was about six years old, <laughs> which, um, yeah, that's obviously a good experience there for someone who, who would later become a traveler full time. <laughs> um, Jess, this is so amazing because that's exactly what happened to me too. My first unaccompanied flight was when I was around five. <laughs> it's like we're, we're, you know, it's it's so cool that our our paths are like unfolding in this way. We're the same person, Julia. <laughs> no, I know we are. We have to meet now in person. We have to figure out a way to do that. We definitely do. Definitely do. So, so even though that, looking back now, I mean, I'm sure you you probably feel the same. You know, now you think back and you go, wow, what what a privilege in a way as a child to be able to see new places, to fly solo, all of these things shape who you are later in life. But at the time, I didn't see it like that always. You know, I wanted to just be like my friends. I wanted my dad to be at home and I wanted to not have to fly to a, a new place in the holidays. I wanted to stay with my friends and play with my friends during the holidays, you know, things like that. So you know, it was confusing for a child and emotionally draining to not have your parents together and for them not to get on very well and having to travel to see different parents at different times. Uh, and that showed in my behavior. I was quite badly <laughs> behaved as a child, quite rebellious. My mom loves to tell me the story when I was ill with tonsillitis. I had to stay at home and my mom took the day off work while she was working from home. And she said, you know, you, you need to stay at home. You need to go to bed. So she went off, started working in the lounge. And then an hour later she was like it's very quiet in Jess's bedroom <laughs> I'd packed my bag and I I 
I'd left. I didn't want to stay at home. I wanted to be at school with my friends. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up coming back in a police car and things. Yeah. And that's not the only time I was in the back of a police car. I was quite adventurous as a six-year-old, seven-year-old. I was quite badly behaved for a little while. And I did spend some time in a convent school, <laughs> which I think my mum thought that might help to straighten me out. And it did to some extent. Nuns nuns are terrifying. They still do terrify me. I think that's from, from my childhood. Yeah. And, and I think my behaviour really began to change when I moved to the UK. I then I moved to the UK when I was 10. My mum and I moved back. So that's where my mum's from. So my dad's Spanish, my mum's English. And she wanted to move back to the UK to be close to her family. And we moved in with my um, grandparents, which I know in many cultures to live with your grandparents, that's completely normal. But in the UK, it was rare. At least none of my friends at school lived with their grandparents. Uh, so that was that was different. But I loved it. I loved it. For me, my mom was away a lot. She worked very long hours. And my nan and my granddad, for me, kind of that calming, stable influence on me and that bad behavior slowly turned into, um, I used that kind of that fire, that energy in me to do well at school when I, I put my head down and, and suddenly was doing well at school, which I wasn't doing so well when I was in Spain. <laughs> I love this story of yours. And I love this experience that you had having that time with your grandparents, because this is actually something that's happening to me right now. I'm living in a multi-generational household with my mom and my grandma here. And that hasn't happened in, for a very long time, especially like to have this time with my grandma. As she's getting so much older now, and I just appreciate that so much that, that you have that time, which like you rightly pointed out, is not very common in a lot of Western countries. So that's amazing that you had that experience. So you uh, you moved to the UK and you started studying. You put your head down, like you said, and you started studying hard. Then at that point, you had this dream of perhaps becoming a snorkeler and swimmer in Mexico. And here you are now, a amazing, accomplished travel journalist. So walk us through that path a little bit, right? So as you were finishing school, what were your thoughts on, okay, what do I do next? And how did that unfold? Yeah, so I went through my education in the UK. And when I first moved to the UK, even though my mum is English, my written English and my reading skills were really, really bad. I couldn't string a sentence together on paper, which is surprising to many considering now I write for a living. So I had to learn very quickly. I did extra classes. And I don't know what it was at what point, but something within me changed. I I think it was because for the first time at school as well, I was behind. I was no longer, you know, on the level playing field with the rest of my classmates. And no child wants to be behind their classmates, you know. So I worked really, really hard and I took extra classes. And eventually, I, I slowly over the years, I went from being in the bottom set. I don't know if, if in the US it's like this, but in the UK, we have different sets of classes. You know, if you're not very good, you'd be in set four and you work your way up to set one. And slowly, slowly, I was able to make my way up. And that was, to me, a real goal uh, when I was younger to move my way up, up those sets and improve my English skills because I hate, I had a Spanish accent when I spoke English as well, which I hated because, you know, you, know, you just don't want to be different. And now when people hear me speak, I sound very British. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't know any difference. So it just goes to show kids are just sponges and we just change and adapt very, very quickly. 
I end up going to college. And then that was the first time I was in, in sixth form, we call it. I started a newsletter. That was my first experience of editorial. It wasn't online. It was like a printed newsletter. It was pretty awful, actually. But um, <laughs> but that was my first. I was really into, I loved it, studying English. That was my favorite subject at school. I was terrible at maths. I was not that great at science. For me, it was languages and literature. So that very quickly, it became apparent what I was good at, that I was good at communicating things. I was good at writing, reading, all of those things. So yeah, as a hobby, I started a newsletter that went out to parents. And, you know, I was, <laughs> I was so geeky looking back. Look, what a nerd. What was the newsletter about? It was just about news that had gone on in that month at school, like who had won prizes, who was doing well in their class, let sports events. And the, and the parents loved it. They loved getting updates on their kids. And I would interview students. And I loved it. I loved interviewing. Looking back, I need to find those newsletters, actually. <laughs> so then from there, I then decided, okay, I did well in my A-levels and all my best grades were in English and languages, literature. So I decided to study comparative literature at university in London. And going to London, for me, from a small town in Surrey in the south of England, just completely blew my mind. London is such a multicultural city. And I'd chosen to study at a university university where the study abroad program was huge the Erasmus program was really really popular and my course in particular you had to have a second language to take the course and not many British people have a second language would you believe and so a lot of the people on my course were from different countries I had people from Russia people from China people from Germany France Italy all over the world so that was really my first experience of being surrounded by people from all over the world and really getting to know those people as I was studying with them every day and socializing with them so that really opened my mind to that and while I was at university I went from you know doing my own student newsletter to then going to university where there was a whole team of people doing student paper and the one at King's was actually quite well known in London because they had won awards as a student paper so as soon as I got there in my first year at uni I went straight to it was called Raw News and I went to them and worked did a few articles for them eventually I applied to be one of the editors opinion editor so yeah I was already dipping my toes into the world of journalism the world of student journalism and that was all through just because I liked writing I particularly loved doing interviews with students and that allowed me to do that I actually spent more time probably doing that than I did my actual course which yeah became a bit of a problem but it also showed me that there was something in it here I was really really enjoying it I love that experience of you being surrounded by all these different people from all over the world. It just opens up your worldview so much, doesn't it? When you see different cultures and all these different ways in which people live. I don't know, it just there's something about it that's so enriching. And it's amazing that you had that experience at particularly that time, because it's also a crucial time, right? When you're in university, you're starting to think about what's next, what do I do? And you have this experience, I feel like it really opens you up to the world 
So, okay, so you were in the uni, you had these experiences interviewing with the school paper, and then what happened next? I finished my degree, and like many, many students, you then go, and now what? This piece of paper is amazing, very nice, but now what do I do? And like all good students, I got straight down to work and looked for graduate jobs in London. And I found one quite quickly, because at that time, I I, I would take anything. I just I was I had no money I'd just come out of university living in London is very expensive and I needed some money so I took almost the first job that came up but funnily enough it was actually in travel it was a travel app you know travel was very much in my mind so it was a travel app I joined as a marketing intern I was doing a lot of blog writing and a very interesting part of that job my job was to approach travel influencers to share the story of of this app and to you know put them in their blogs and to put them on their Instagram stories and posts and so I was sitting there in an office in London it was the middle of winter and I'm just seeing these these beautiful normally beautiful bloggers and beautiful influencers doing amazing things all over the world and I thought god this is amazing how are these guys doing that but then equally on the other side I didn't identify with what these particular influencers that I was working with were doing it wasn't I didn't see myself as an influencer I was very much still had in my head I wanted to be a journalist but I wanted to be a journalist and also be able to travel travel was in my mind from the beginning I actually within a month or two I knew that actually this job was more just to save money and then I would go traveling as soon as I'd saved enough so I stayed there for nine months and I thought the more I keep doing this work with influencers the more I'm thinking well if they can do it why can't I find something that not necessarily that it will be in travel writing but something that will allow me to travel for a long period of time and not have to come back just because of money I didn't take a gap year so I thought this is my time I'm going to save my money and then go and then I saw a blog about someone who was working for their company remotely and I didn't even know really what the word meant at the time I'd heard it thrown around but I thought what does that mean to work remotely I read a post and it said they'd asked their their boss to take them on remotely and they'd said yes. And I thought, why can't, shall I do that? I'm thinking of going traveling. I could ask my boss if we were a small team, it was a startup company. And this is pretty bold of me because I was an intern. So why someone would keep an intern on remotely when they've only been here for a couple of months? I don't know what I was thinking, but I'd been there. I managed to stick it out for nine months. I was commuting in every single day from Surrey. I absolutely hated the commute. It took me almost two hours to get into work and it wasn't for me. I was, I really wasn't happy. And, but what kept me going was that, okay, I'm going to go traveling no matter what happens when I hit that nine month period when I said I would go traveling I'm gonna do it and that's what kept me going and I handed in my notice to say I was going and at the last minute I decided to just say I'm gonna go traveling but would you be interested in keeping me on remotely kind of winced I literally like shuddered when I said it because I thought oh my god what have I just done this is embarrassing (laughs) because I'm gonna get rejected but after a little bit of silence and he kind of looked around the room he went actually that's not a bad idea 21-year-old Jess sitting in a big office in London with the CEO of this startup and 
yeah, it was a huge win for me. I remember getting on the train home kind of with a big smile on my face thinking, what have I just done? I have no idea. I didn't even know where I was going at that point. I didn't know what, where I was going to travel to, what my plan was. But my boss said he was going to take me on and it was a fraction of the money that I would earn in London, but it was a little bit of money and that gave me the confidence to book my flight out to Cuba and that's where it all began. Oh my gosh, that is so amazing. I just love that story so much. And so many points that stood out to me in what you said and in your experience. First is that how important it is for us to really see other people doing something similar to what we want to do, right? So your experience with those influencers, and even though you knew you didn't want to do that exactly, but you saw them doing something amazing with their life. And you're like, how can I do that? Because a lot of times when we have these kind of dreams that are, let's say, outside of the norm that are a little bit more scary or a little bit more bold. It's so important for us to surround ourselves with people who are on similar paths, because Mm -hmm. there's something happens when we see other people do it. It's like, I can do it too. It's so important. So it sounds like that's what happened to you too. And that's really cool. I feel like in this career, we have to have this boldness almost sometimes to go and ask for things that we want and not be afraid that we're going to get rejection or actually be afraid and do it anyway. And I feel like that that was your example too, that you had it in your character where you just went and asked for it. And even though you were shuddering, it's like, I'm going to get rejected right now, but you did it. And that is so important because when you pitch, when you put your ideas out there, there's always that possibility, right? That you're going to get rejected for a lot of different reasons, but doing it anyway. And even if you're afraid of that rejection, going for it anyway, that's super important. And you had it even back then to do that. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, the the rejection thing, you make a really good point there because I was almost more afraid of the embarrassment of him saying no than the actual outcome. Does that make sense? It, It was that feeling, that awkwardness of being told no because immediately you think, I'm being told no because he's not taking me seriously. I'm being told no because I'm not good enough rather than, oh, you know, that he said no, it's not the right time, it's not the right thing for him. And okay, let's move on. You pick yourself up. It was just the fear of that awkwardness and just being made to feel small. Yeah, I think it's because we take those no's as a personal judgment on ourselves. And that's why it's so hard. And when we can learn that it's absolutely not about ourselves, that like you said, there's so many different reasons. The timing isn't right. They don't have the budget. Whatever else is the reason. It's never about the personal judgment on yourself. And I think once you internalize that, then you become so much more spacious in the way you approach all these situations. It's not about me. Let's ask and let's just see what happens. And I feel like it's such a different space to be in as you go through your life. It is. And it's easier said than done. I think when you hear people talk about that, you go, yeah, of course, I'm going to do it next time. And you just stall and you stall again. But really to anyone feeling like that, just know that you're not alone in that because we all experience it. And you will find a moment where it feels right for you. For some reason, something will just click. And in that moment, I think it was a bit of just blind panic and it just came out. Sometimes it just needs to just stumble out like that, even if it doesn't sound rehearsed or Mm. or very eloquent, but it it comes out anyway. And then, yeah, I think good things sometimes come out of it. 
And one thing that we also discuss in our community is that there are ways that you can also build up that muscle of being afraid of rejections or of hearing no. Like one small example I'll give is that start practicing little things each day. And outside of the pandemic, before the pandemic, what we would recommend is you can start going up to people on the street and asking them for $5. And people are going to say no, most likely. And it's very hard to come up to a stranger and to ask for $5 or go up to a coffee shop and ask for a free coffee. It's going to be very hard to do that. And you're probably going to hear no in response. But that's the way you practice that overcoming that feeling that embarrassment that you were talking about you are learning in the process that actually nothing bad is happening okay i just heard a no but i survived this and you overcome that over time you know so like little small ways in which you can practice that is something that you can do as well i i actually listened to that in in your previous i think you said it in one of your other episodes and that really resonated with me to just nothing bad happens <laughs> nothing bad happens but I think until you experience that yourself it doesn't sink in someone can tell you that a million times but you really need to experience it and to really see that nothing bad actually happens you went to Cuba and you started traveling full-time while you had this support from the startup in London, which is actually a very smart way to do this, right? Instead of kind of jumping off without any support. I always recommend that if you're thinking about pursuing a similar path, that you figure out a way to have some support, whether it's a part-time remote job or any other way that you can create that for yourself. It's just a really good way to do that. So is that when your travel storytelling career started? No, not really. The travel storytelling came after. When I first started traveling, I didn't know yet that was exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I loved to write. I knew I loved traveling. I knew I loved storytelling, but I just didn't know how to put it all together. Honestly, I didn't really even know that travel writing was a real job. You know, I saw, I, I just couldn't fathom that idea. I obviously saw, for me, what was most visible was the influencer side, if anything. Because I was a big social media user. When I was planning my trip, I would use Instagram for inspiration. I would use blog posts for inspiration. So for me, they were the people at the forefront. I didn't really know of that many journalists that were being quite vocal about their career. It didn't seem attainable to me at the time. But slowly, as I started traveling, I started posting a few things to Instagram. And at the time, I didn't have a following. But I noticed that quite a few people would give me really great feedback about the kinds of places that I'd been to and the kinds of things that I'd done they'd go oh wow I wouldn't have thought to go there or how did you plan that and that craftsman that you, that you met that was incredible I would never would have thought to go and meet them you know things like that and to me when I was traveling through Cuba and Costa Rica Panama those things I don't know why, but they were coming naturally to me. I really liked speaking to people. I liked getting off the beaten track and sitting down to dinner and having all these experiences that weren't in my guidebook. And it didn't feel like a chore to me. It didn't feel difficult. And having Spanish obviously really helped with that. And it got to a point where I'd met so many amazing people. And I thought, there's stories here. There are, really, there are stories. And the first time I looked into it, I saw a Matador network had a, um, what's it called? A, a marketplace, I think it's called, where they put out a pitch for a story about, I don't know, Spanish foods or something to do with foods. And I thought, I can do this. I've, I, I'm half Spanish. I've lived 
lived half my life in Spain. I can pitch this. And it was a travel publication. It didn't matter that it wasn't about where I was at the time, but it was something. And I pitched it and they got back to me and they said, yes, they weren't paying much money at all. But for me, it was a huge win because Matador Network, I'd followed them on Instagram. They had a big following. They had loads of cool articles out. So I thought, wow, yeah, that was that was huge for me. And then from there, I wrote for Culture Trip in the similar way. They put out a call for pitches and someone in a travel group that I joined used to work for Culture Trip. And they gave me an email to an editor and I sent the editor an email saying, hey, I'm I'm traveling full time. I'm in Latin America. I've seen that. And at the time, Culture Trip were churning out so much content, so much content. And they needed cheap writers, essentially, all over the world who were on the ground and could give them listicles and guides and things like that. Um, and can turn around articles around very quickly. So I ended up writing like 30 articles for Culture Trip a month for about eight or nine months. I was doing a lot of articles for them. And actually, maybe we'll talk about this after, but I shouldn't have given all my work to Culture Trip. Uh, and that, that, comes around to me not feeling good enough yet to pitch my stories to National Geographic or the BBC. Tell me more about that. When you say you shouldn't have given all your work to Culture Trip, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So I felt once I got that commission and it was that for Culture Trip, they then offered me to write 30 stories a month. And I thought that was wonderful, you know, to be paid on a contract to produce 30 travel articles a month for Culture Trip. That's an amazing job. But then what happened was that any cool story that I found uh, where I was at the time in Peru. Oh, any... it was like they had first priority for it? Is well, what... not they didn't have to, but in my head, I thought that I had to keep them happy and I had to keep them on side. So everything I had, I was just out to please. I was up to please and whatever story I had, I gave it to them and they... They were loving it because they were getting some some pretty cool stories. I was going beyond the listicles because I what I enjoy writing about is you know, longer form, deep dives into to cultural pieces, and that's what I was pitching to them. And looking back now, I wish I'd realized earlier that you don't have to have lots and lots and lots of experience. Some experience, yes, but not lots and lots to pitch to at least try. To pitch to the bigger magazines. Yeah, that was a learning curve for me. I love that you said that, Jess. Thank you so much, because this is exactly at the crux of everything that we do with Genius Women, right? It's realizing that you have a unique voice, you have a unique perspective, and your stories matter. And what you have to say matters and deserves to be out there in the world. And exactly like you said, right? Yes, some experience is great. And you have to be strategic and you have to do your homework when you're pitching these bigger publications. But don't let that lack of... Let's say already huge, amazing, accomplished portfolio stop you from going out there and reaching out. And I think there is a definitely a time and a place for publications like Matador and Culture Trip. I actually started my first published article, I think was Matador Network. I think it was like 40 hours an article. Yep, yep, snap. <laughs> it's crazy how our paths are so similar. It's in some really ways. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, there, is a, there is a time 
time and a place for publications like that. And when you're trying out, right, when you're like trying to see for yourself that this is possible for you, because that's the most important part for that. We call it starter publications in our course. I have this like tiered approach to how you start pitching. And these are, I call them starter publications. So this is for you to see for yourself, to feel it in your bones that this is possible for you. And to your point, you bring those really amazing stories to publications that you really want to work with. So I really appreciate you sharing that story with us. No, pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah, it was, I just realized too late, I think. And part of that was because I just didn't know what I was doing. I was, I was just happy to get whatever work I could. I wish that that would have been different. But then again, you know, working for Culture Trip did really improve my writing and improve my pitching. So nothing's wasted. Absolutely. And I always say this too, that actually one of the best ways for us to get better and to improve our work is to start working and to start pitching and start writing actual articles. I look back now to some of the things I wrote in 2016, 2017. I cringe, honestly. But how else do you improve? And I think it really matters that you do this professionally for pay, meaning that you put out this work that might not be that good, but the way for you to get better is to keep doing that professionally. Because I could be writing for myself in my Google Doc for myself forever, but it's important to get that feedback, right, from other people looking at your work. And I always say that for me, the best gift of this job and and the process that I enjoy so much is working with editors who are stellar and who are improving my work with their feedback, with their questions, with their pointed notes. And I love that because they make the work so much stronger in the end. And that collaboration is really special. So true. So true. I think that's why you knew that even if you were writing for Culture Trip instead of National Geographic, you still had another pair of eyes on that piece of work. And at that time, that's what I really needed because I had no journalism training. I had a degree, so I was used to writing essays, but I hadn't had any formal training. And again, with interviewing, the editors really helped me and pointed me in the right direction as to what kind of questions I should be asking to get the right story. So to any of your listeners, I would recommend just getting your work out there. Don't be too precious about who it is you're writing for at the beginning. Obviously, as long as they align with your ideas and certain things, but in terms of is it a big publication, is it a small publication, that doesn't matter as long as you're telling a story that you want to tell and getting someone to read it for you as part of that package. That's a huge benefit. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. It's really important to just get it out there. So tell me, as you were kind of establishing yourself and growing your experience and perhaps starting to reach out to different publications, did you see other women in this field? And was there someone that impacted you? Or did you notice the way people, especially women, were doing this work and how they were finding their voices and their confidence? Was there anyone who was an inspiration to you at that point? Well, actually, you, Yulia. <laughs> That's not why I asked this question, I promise. <laughs> it's so true. When I said about social media, is there aren't that many journalists that or mm. travel writers. Perhaps they, you know, they might post, you know, this is where I am or here's my story. But there was never that much background. They're quite quite private people on social media. So I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know how they were getting to those stories. I didn't know how they were pitching. 
And I think the first time I found I found your social media and you were the one of the first people that I'd found that was talking about your stories that you'd published, who you'd published for, a bit of background about how you found the story or you'd post a photo, a bit of behind the scenes. And the fact that you were a woman as well. Yeah, it, it just it just seemed more accessible. If you see people that are doing similar things that you want to do, particularly because your stories were the kind of stories that I was trying to tell through culture trip and that I really wanted to do eventually for National Geographic and the BBC and I was seeing that you were working for them and I think a few times I messaged you and I said how amazing how did you do it and you always replied and I think that does give you confidence and I did the same for for other female journalists that I saw were working for the BBC, CNN, and I would reach out to them on, well, actually not reach out to them, I'd just stalk them on LinkedIn and see what they were doing. So you know how in LinkedIn you can see all their previous work experience. So I would look at the different things that they'd done. Where do I need to start? Right, look right at the bottom. What did they do? Who did they write for? I just try to see as many as many different profiles as I could and try and match mine to those which now thinking about it you know you should never just follow someone's someone's LinkedIn profile but it at least showed me a kind of a little path of how I could maybe get to my goal which was to write for National Geographic and the BBC. Goodness! First of all, thank you so much. I I really appreciate that you. I, I would say I'm 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 glad that I was able to give that example, right, and to be an inspiration. That's really why I'm doing this work now with Genius Women, specifically for that reason, to be that inspiration for others. And I think what you're pointing out is actually a real problem in this industry that you had to revert to stalking LinkedIn profiles because there is no path in this industry. No one is really showing us the way, right? I talk sometimes about if you want to become a lawyer or a partner in a law firm, there is a certain path for you. You know what you need to do, right? You need to serve as a clerk with a judge. You need to perhaps be in corporate law for a while. Like there are certain steps that you know you need to take on that path. And in this industry, it's not quite like that, right? What my experience has been is that like we're all poking around in the dark. No, that's really the intention behind the Genius Women platform is to start revealing some of that and, and to start showing the path to people who are interested in this path. Because that was my experience too, that I really didn't know what next step should I take. There was just really a lot of trial and error. I think actually you you were much smarter than me that you were doing that LinkedIn profile, <laughs> figuring out the steps because I was really just like trial and error, trial and error. What do I do next? But I think, yeah, I think it's a real issue in this industry that there isn't a path. But I'm glad that you had the experience where the people that you were reaching out to, that they were sharing with you, because I think we need more of that. We need less of competition. We need less of guarding the secrets. We need less exclusivity and we need more sharing and we need more openness. And I loved that you experienced that on your path. I couldn't agree more. And I think with what I've been trying to do with my Instagram lives as well, and that's, you know, with no real agenda, I just want to get more travel journalists, more travel photographers and filmmakers to talk openly about their journeys and about what the travel industry is like. Because you get this surely all the time as well, messages going, how do you do this? How do you do this? And you think in 2021, with all the information that there is in the internet, but 
people still don't understand what it is to be a travel writer. They don't because in this industry, for some reason, hasn't been as open as other industries. And I think now with social media and the internet, we don't have an excuse. We've got those channels now and we need to use those to welcome people into the industry. It's big enough for everyone. And in fact, we need younger, fresh blood in the industry. You know, we need different voices. It's been the same voices again and again, particularly with, I mean, travel TV. It's been the same I don't know six people doing the tv shows how is that possible so yeah I'm really excited about what you're doing and I'm hoping that in the next few years we're gonna have more travel journalists out there and and also inspiring more people to get out there and explore the world in a thoughtful way that's our job I think we should be spreading that message as much as possible rather than keeping it closed I agree so much. And I think this is a great segue to talking about what you're working on now and some of the projects that are giving you joy and energy and excitement for this following year. Because I just love what you're doing with your Inside Travel Media series. And for our listeners, we'll link to it in our show notes. So definitely go check it out. Jess is interviewing some incredible people in the industry. So definitely check it out. But tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now, what's bringing you joy at the moment in this still challenging time for the travel industry. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a bumpy ride these last few months. I was really really fortunate. My career has picked up in the last year. You know, I'm a, I'm a baby in the travel journalism world, and my first big break was with the BBC at the end of last year. And then throughout 2020, I've done some projects that just were stuff of dreams for me. You know, I, I National Geographic sent me to Italy to do a story on parmesan for three days i just got to eat parmesan i've done some stories for adventure travel magazine i get to hike through the mexican jungle through on on a hike that is very rarely open to outsiders and the indigenous groups there very kindly allowed me to trek through their land and i got to learn so much about them i've interviewed the first female drum maker in belize and so that last year and the year before that was was really amazing going into this year obviously it's very uncertain with commissions national geographic for example are still commissioning and i've been able to do some stories that i can do from my desk for example stories about bulgaria because i spent a month there at the beginning of last year for me it felt like i was just kicking off my career and then and then covid hit so i haven't been able to do the projects that i had in mind however it has given me time to focus on other things like growing inside travel media doing these interviews every week with some incredible people i mean people that i thought would never speak to me <laughs> but i've had a really good response to that i've actually the series is booked out till the end of March. So that's that's been a big project. I'm also looking at curating travel writing anthology. So putting together best American travel writings that you've been publishing one, I think, for 20 years in the US. But in the UK, we've never had a best travel writing anthology, a collection of 24 stories or 25 stories, it will be, of the best long form travel narratives published in UK media, like National Geographic Traveller, like BBC Travel, publications like that. That's an exciting project that hopefully we'll see. It's still in the very early stages of talking to publishers and things but we'll see if that happens so that's in the pipeline and who knows what else 
at the moment it's impossible for me to plan any trips because we're in lockdown so no trips for me until at least the spring or the summer yeah but I think that to your earlier point no work and no experience goes wasted so I recognize the same feeling because I've also had it for 2020 you know my my career was gonna unfold in a really amazing way in 2020 like I had so many things that didn't come to fruition that I was planning and I also had a little bit of that fear like does that mean that I'm losing momentum really and that I almost have to start over in the sense of building that momentum again but what I'm seeing is that no not it's not really how it's unfolding for me and to your point there are still desk stories that you can write and there are still things that you can do and I really don't feel that my career has been irrevocably hurt by this one year that we weren't able to travel as much if that makes sense i'm sending similar wishes and thoughts to you that that's the case you know it's incredible to hear about your curation project and all the amazing stories that you've already worked on. And for our listeners, I really encourage you to go check out Jess on Instagram and to look up her stories. We will link to it in our profile. It's just a very inspirational, incredible example. So what advice would you give to women who have aspirations for a travel journalist career who are just starting out on this journey? so many things what one can I choose what people see on Instagram for example it looks like us journalists we're just always doing fun stuff and creating amazing stories but actually a big part of getting to where I was today was having some income but I knew I wanted to have enough time in my day to really dedicate a few hours of my day to pitching and to story creation even if at the end of the day I got no reply back I knew that those two hours I could afford to to take those two hours off because I'd worked hard in the morning and earned some money there. And having that peace of mind and allowing yourself to give up a couple of hours for this you know, your dream project on the side was really important for me because I wasn't too hard on myself. I needed to have that money. And another thing that helped with that was I chose to live in a cheaper place so that I could dedicate more time to writing and more time to pitching. I think sometimes when people hear these stories of I just became a travel journalist, I gave up my job, I flew into the sunset, I went to Barbados, and now I'm making lots of money being a journalist. And I don't think that we're always very honest about the realities of being a travel journalist. It's tough, even now that I've written for National Geographic and the BBC and CNN and lots of other publications, I still struggle to make money from travel journalism at the end of the month. And that's me being completely honest out, you know, that, and there are people that make lots of money from it. But now while I'm still building a portfolio and still building a name for myself, it is hard for me to make money at, at the end of every month. So how do I balance that is that I find work copywriting work that pays well I don't just do copywriting I will try and split that up with projects that really light me up and really excite me and I find that that balance at the moment has worked really well for me to have a little bit of income coming in stable so I'm not going crazy that I don't have enough money every month and then the other half of my time is purely dedicated to those dream projects and as I'm starting to build my career I think that's been key in being successful because no one can pitch good stories if they're pulling their hair out in stress because they can't pay their bills at the end of the month. So just really 
think about the practicalities. If you know you want to be a travel journalist, know that you can do it, but just find a way to really balance what you love doing with the practical side of earning good money at the end of every month. I love that, Jess. Thank you so much. Everything you said right now is just such a wisdom and such a beautiful and real way to talk about the reality of this career. I think what's really important that you said is that you dedicate two hours a day, let's say, to pitching consistently mm -hmm. and to doing this work consistently, because this is what I always talk about, that consistency is what's going to get you results. It's not pitching once and not hearing back and saying, okay, it's not for me, I'm not good enough or whatever. It's being consistent with it and really committing to this path. But then on the other side, it's figuring out a way you can support this dream. Because I just love how you said that you're not going to be able to pitch good stories if you're pulling your hair out. It's so true, right? Your best work comes when you're in flow, when you're calm, when you're present, when you're spacious, not when you're stressed out. And so I always say, like, what does that mean for you? It's different for all of us, right? We all have different situations. We all have different financial needs and requirements figure out what that means for you. What can you do to support yourself while you're building this dream? But don't stop, right? Don't stop just because you have certain financial needs or requirements. You can still do it. You have to commit and you have to be able to do that consistently. I love the story that Elizabeth Gilbert says, right? She was a waitress for many, many, many years as she was a writer. And she called herself a writer. She was a writer, but she was so unapologetic about supporting herself with waitressing. And that's a very real approach, right? It's not glamorizing it. It's saying, no, I'm a writer. This is my craft. I commit to it. But realistically, I have to support myself. I need some income. So I'm also going to be waitressing. And she did that even as she was publishing in all these magazines as well for years until, you know, Eat, Pray, Love became this huge success that it did. But I love that approach, right? Because it's really real. And it says, I'm going to commit to my craft. I commit to it. No matter what other copywriting job I have, marketing job I have, this is my craft. This is my dream. And I'm going to keep working at it while I support my myself with other means of income. And I think there is absolutely no shame in that. Absolutely no shame. So I just love that you're sharing that with us. Thank you. No, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. There is no shame. Absolutely no shame. And I think a lot more journalists than we think, a lot more travel writers in particular, are in the exact same position. They just haven't said so. <laughs> and that's the difference. Because, you know, if, if on your website you're a travel journalist, you don't want to tell people on podcasts and things that actually to make a living you're also doing someone's marketing for them because it doesn't add to the glamour. But that's the truth of it. And, it, and it's not... It, It's not beneficial to hide that part because we're all in it together and uh, it's particularly for people taking your courses and things they should know that that's a very real part of it and that helps you grow as a freelancer you are your own boss and you do have to juggle different projects at the same time Yeah, definitely. I would love to keep talking to you, Jess. We have so much to cover still and I, I think we need to do another conversation But for today, we're going to close. And what I would love to close with is this question that I always end with. It's a big one, but how would you start thinking about what does it mean to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance today? Wow. There is so, so many aspects to being a brilliant woman. And I think that what constitutes as a woman stepping into her brilliance probably shifts and transforms depending on where that woman is in her journey and what her goals are. But I think 
there are probably two key things that I've noticed in all the brilliant women that I admire. And the first is women who, who are stepping into their brilliance have mastered or even somehow thriving off fear and uncertainty. And we've mentioned fear in this before. And I think fear comes up a lot in your podcast series because it is it is so, so important. When you see amazing women doing incredible things, our immediate response is, wow, she's so fearless or wow, she's so brave. But as soon as you start digging a little deeper into their stories, you realize that woman who seemed amazing to you isn't fearless at all. You know, she, she feels fear. In fact, she probably feels more fear than most people because she's doing something extraordinary. She's pushing boundaries and pushing boundaries is very, very scary. And that's a human emotion. But brilliant women for me are those who are using that fear as kind of a fire or a fuel as motivation to then chase their dreams. That's the difference. We all feel it, but we're doing it anyway. And that that's a huge thing. And then the second part, and again, I think I think it's been mentioned here before as well, is action. All of us have dreams and aspirations. And once we've got that fear, the difference between a brilliant woman and a woman who isn't stepping into brilliance at that time is someone who acts on her dreams. She talks the talk, but she also walks the walk, you know, is it to to not be cliche there, but it's, it's so true. It's someone who feels fear and acts on that fear and uses fear as, as motivation to get her to where she wants to be. This is such a beautiful ending to our conversation today. I really, really appreciate it. I couldn't have said it better myself. I have to bring you back because I love talking to you today. And I think that there is a lot more wisdoms and beautiful things that we can draw out in our conversations. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julia. It's been an honor to be on here. And I love what you're doing. So keep going. And guys, you need to take Julia's advice. She knows what she's doing. Thank you so much for listening to our show and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jessica. If you did, please take a moment to share a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts or share it on your socials. Every little bit helps. We are working hard on creating a show that's useful and inspiring to you and would be so grateful if you helped us reach more people who would enjoy it too. Thanks again and I'll see you next week.